This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 6th episode of Season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know you typically only breathe out of one nostril at a time? I'll just wait for you to finish trying it before I continue. Thank you. Instead of both nostrils taking in the same amount of air when you breathe, you actually inhale most of your oxygen through one nostril at a time. Every few hours, the active nostril takes a break, and the other one takes over until they ultimately switch back again. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Each section of the British Isles has its own way of laughing, except Wales, which doesn't. That was said by Stephen Leacock, who's apparently the best-known English-speaking humorist in the world. This case was suggested by Equinox Child via the contact page at britishmurders.com. We're in the Lancashire village of Bamber Bridge this week. Here are five quick-fire facts about Bamber Bridge. Number one. In 1943, a racially motivated firefight occurred when American military police tried to arrest black American soldiers for drinking with the local white Brits. Private William Crossland was the sole person killed in what became known as the Battle of Bamber Bridge. Number two, people who live in Bamber Bridge like to be known as Briggers. Number three, the name Bamber Bridge derives from the Old English Beam and Brig. Brig? Christ, as I say that. Which probably means Tree Trunk Bridge. I ran out of facts about Bamber Bridge at this point, so here's a couple about Preston, a neighbouring Lancashire city. Fact four. It's believed that Charles Dickens' novel Hard Times was inspired by his time in Preston. Dickens travelled to Preston in 1854 during the Great Lockout. And finally, number five, in 1965, Ray Allen opened the UK's first Kentucky Fried Chicken store on Fishergate High Street in Preston after meeting Colonel Sanders in 1963. Ray managed to secure the UK rights for the Colonel's secret fried chicken recipe. The approximate population of Bamba Bridge, according to the 2011 census, is 13,945. 
This is one of those head-scratcher stories that leaves you unsure as to what happened and who is to blame, even after hearing all the available information. Those of you who are eagle-eyed will notice that in this episode's title and artwork, I've included a question mark after the name of the alleged villain of our story. I've done that deliberately because I just can't make my mind up as to whether or not Margaret Livesey is guilty of what she were convicted of, the murder of her teenage son. It's something I want you to have in the back of your mind as we go through the story. It becomes evident as I delve deeper into this chilling story that there are inconsistencies and missing pieces of information that complicate our understanding of what truly happened. I'm going to throw a few stats at you now about filicide, a term used to describe the deliberate killing by a parent of their child. In the year ending March 2022, there were 54 victims of homicide aged under 16 years. In 14 of those offences, the person responsible was the child's parent or step-parent. That's a rather chilling figure when you convert it to a percentage. 26% of child murder victims were killed at the hands of their parents or step-parents. When you consider that 25 of those 54 victims, 46%, were killed by someone who has yet to be charged, the potential number of filicide victims rises to a jaw-dropping 72%. A child under 16 being killed by a stranger seems to be a rather rare occurrence, with only 5% of child homicides occurring at the hands of a stranger. Those are some genuinely frightening figures. It makes sense for me to first introduce 14-year-old Alan Livesey, a pupil at Walton Liddale High School who lived in Bamber Bridge with his parents Bob and Margaret. Number 41, the Crescent, is situated at the end of a four-terraced block of houses on what can be described as a semicircle of properties joining onto Collins Road North. Semicircle, the Crescent, you can see how it got its name. The school was only a couple of hundred yards away from the house, so Alan's commute was pretty cushy. If that line sounds familiar, it's because I said something similar last week. In fact, this episode is so similar to last week's that I got pretty confused whilst writing them as they were written simultaneously. Both involved high school kids, one being 15, one being 14, who both died in the mid to late 70s. Add to that the fact there are suspected miscarriages of justice in both cases, including supposed forced confession statement signings, and you can see why I got confuddled. Anyway, the Crescent. Picture a street where nobody's business is private. Gossip was rife, and there was no way you could do anything without your curtain-twitching neighbours cottoning on and telling the whole street within five minutes. Alan was the youngest of three children to his parents. His older sister Janet had moved out of the family home after tying the knot with her husband, and his older brother Derek, Bob and Margaret's eldest child, was away in Cyprus serving with the British Army. 43-year-old Margaret Livesey was a care assistant who enjoyed the occasional cheeky bevy or two and liked to socialise with her neighbours, either down the local pub or in each other's houses. Alan's dad Bob was a night shift worker at former car manufacturing conglomerate British Leyland. Unfortunately, there are limited details about Alan's early years and upbringing. However, there have been some reports that indicate he was the victim of child abuse from his mum. It is important to note that the abuse described was not sexual, but Alan would sometimes receive the odd slap to his head when his mum felt like it was warranted. The events surrounding this story took place in the 70s when societal norms regarding discipline vastly differed from today's. Of course, such behaviour is unacceptable regardless of the era, but it appears that the abuse inflicted upon Alan went beyond what might have been considered typical disciplinary measures for that time. 
At one point, someone reported Alan's situation to the NSPCC, the National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children, one of the UK's leading children's charities. On the back of that report, a caseworker from the NSPCC visited their home and took photographs of Alan, presumably documenting any visible signs of physical harm. Coming at it from another angle, perhaps there were no signs of abuse, and the caseworker took the photos to confirm that no concerns were held. Only the family and caseworker know the ins and outs of that incident. Alan could be sneaky and mischievous at times, like I'm told all teenagers are. He would sneak out of his bedroom window and escape down a drain pipe whenever he was grounded. To add further fuel to the abuse accusation, Alan reportedly did this after being locked in his room. He didn't just get sent there after misbehaving, he essentially got caged. We are getting straight into the story now, as I've pretty much covered everything I can regarding Alan and his background. It began on February 22nd, 1979. That Thursday evening, Alan ate his tea as usual around 6pm after saying goodnight to his dad as he headed out of the family home to begin his night shift at the British Leyland factory. A couple of hours later, Alan accompanied his mum to the local off-licence to grab a few bevies and it wasn't exactly a harmonious trip. The mother and son pair were seen having what has been described as a row by multiple witnesses, although the details of said row are not known. At the time, Alan was wearing his civilian clothes, consisting of either jeans and a t-shirt, or trousers and a jumper, depending on which source you believe. You see, there's one more thing I need to tell you about Alan, which plays a vital role in this mysterious story. Alan desperately wanted to follow in the footsteps of his brother and join the British Army. As he was too young to apply, Alan had to settle for joining the Army Cadets, who, despite not being part of the recruiting process for the armed forces, were the next best thing. He loved dressing in his military fatigues whenever the opportunity arose, much to the dismay of Margaret, and resented the times when he had to wear his civvies, the nickname given to standard civilian clothes like you or I wear every day. By around 10 to 9, Alan was home alone. Margaret had headed out to the nearby Queen's Hotel pub to meet her friend Marion Walker for a drink. That's what she told Alan, at least. There was someone else at the pub who she planned on meeting that night, her secret lover, Frank. Bob had no idea that his wife was having an affair, but his work pattern sadly allowed Margaret to get away with it. Here is where the story starts getting a tad more complex, so I'll do my best to explain it to you as clearly as possible. Between 9 and 10 p.m., some of Alan's neighbours recalled hearing loud noises from number 41. Living next door at number 39 was Susan Warren and her partner Ronnie Mason. Ronnie specifically recalled hearing a disturbance at 9.55pm, something he described as larking about. Roughly translated, that means getting up to mischief. It sounded like a couple of boys having a play fight, which wasn't out of the ordinary for Alan, as he would often sneak his mates round when he had the house to himself. The precise time at 9.55pm was recalled because the TV show Ronnie was watching had just ended. It's worth pointing out as well that Ronnie's is one of, if not the only story, that has stayed consistent and hasn't deviated one bit in the decades since this story's events occurred. Susan also recalled hearing something coming from number 41, which sounded like Alan's voice conversing with another male. Susan was putting her youngest daughter Tracy to bed at the time. Ten minutes later, Susan's younger brother Peter Nightingale, a teenager and mate of Alan's, had made his way to his sister's after leaving another mate's house at 10pm and was climbing over her back fence when he spotted something next door at number 41. 
As he lifted his leg over the fence, he heard what he believed to be a bolt being drawn back, i.e. a door being unlocked or opened. It dawned on him that someone must be making their way into Alan's kitchen, but the curious thing was that the light wasn't on. Exiting the back of the house was a male figure who Peter clocked at being around 5 foot 10 with longish white blonde hair that bounced off his shoulders as he walked. As the strange figure hopped a nearby fence and swiftly exited down a path at the back of the garden into the night, Peter recalled hearing a distinctive noise. It was the sound caused by arms rubbing against the side of an anorak. If you know, you know. Christine Norris lived on the other side of Alan's house at number 43, although I must confirm that numbers 41 and 43 are not attached. Their respective gardens separate the properties. Christine, when first interviewed by police in the immediate aftermath of the event I'll come on to, said she didn't recall hearing anything untoward on the evening of February 22nd. Her story would change four days later, however, when she informed police that she had heard Alan and Margaret arguing at around 10.30pm. Susan would go on to tell the police something similar four days after she was initially questioned by detectives, with her timestamp being between 10.45 and 11pm when she thought she heard the mother and son arguing. Sticking with the night in question, you'll recall that Margaret was at the Queen's Hotel pub with her friend Marion and lover Frank. Christine and Susan's testimony comes into question here because, according to the bar staff at the Queen's Hotel, all of their patrons had left, including Margaret and Frank, by 10.45pm. Whether they left at the precise time is debatable, but the two would later claim they left the establishment at 10.50pm. It's five minutes later than when the place closed, but given the bar staff should have been sober and Margaret and Frank will have had a few jars, the time discrepancy doesn't appear all that huge. Frank claims to have driven Margaret home that evening with the short 10-minute journey, meaning they arrived at the entrance to the Crescent at roughly 11pm. Margaret insisted that, as she walked towards her home, she spotted a couple of lads hanging about in the garden of her friend Eileen Matthews' house at number 63. The two boys were Andrew Matthews, Eileen's youngest son, and Tommy Rogers. A stern look and a question as to what they were doing out so late was followed by the two lads quickly scarpering. Margaret said she then knocked on Eileen's door and informed her about what she'd just seen. As she explained the situation, she went inside after being invited for a drink. According to the case prosecutors, Margaret first went home, argued with Alan, killed him, and then knocked on the door of Eileen's house in the hope of securing some form of alibi. Questions have been raised about the timing though, because it would have been a very tight window for Margaret to have done all that essentially within half an hour, given Christine and Susan's respective testimonies. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Back at number 63, Margaret sat on the arm of a chair with a cider in her hand as the conversation resumed. At the house already was Tommy Rogers' mum and, naturally, Eileen's husband. Shortly after Margaret arrived at number 63, Eileen's eldest son, Leslie Matthews, came home. 
The 17-year-old was put to task immediately to go out and try to find his brother and Tommy, but two failed attempts led to him returning home alone. It was at that point that Margaret asked Leslie to head over to her house at number 41 to see if the two boys were there with Alan. Once more, Leslie returned alone after explaining that the door was locked and his knocks on the door went unanswered. He did note that the TV was on and sounded like it was turned way up. Handing Leslie the keys to the house, Margaret asked him to go for another look, to check up on Alan more than anything. Making his way inside, Leslie could not have prepared himself for what he saw. Alan Livesey was lying face down, motionless on the floor, surrounded by a small pool of blood. Leslie has said of discovering Alan's body, I turned him over and he made a funny groaning noise and his chest was wet. I took a sock from his neck and saw a lot of cuts. I saw that he was still alive, so I tried to give him the kiss of life. Whoever had inflicted Alan's injuries must have done so fairly recently, otherwise he'd have bled out and passed away by the time Leslie found him. Home Office pathologist Dr John Benstead conducted the subsequent post-mortem and confirmed that Alan had been stabbed a total of ten times in his heart, neck and chest. His hands were bound behind his back using a necktie and a long red football sock had been tied around his neck. A specialist fisherman's knot was used to bind Alan's hands, which is not necessarily something Margaret would have known how to do. It's a pretty complicated knot. I got lost on step two of an image that shows you how to tie one. It appears as though the sock was used in an attempt to minimise the amount of blood spatter. Was Alan's killer afraid of the sight of blood? Or did they simply want there to be as little bloodshed as possible? Regardless, the official cause of death was hemorrhaging and shock caused by multiple stab wounds. As brutal as those injuries are, Dr Benstead made a startling claim. He believed the attack was not a frenzied one, because Alan had some more minor cuts and grazes on his face and eyelids, suggesting someone had been up close and personal with a sharp instrument. Alan Livesey appeared to not only have been killed, he was also tortured. Typically when a parent kills a child, it's an emotional outburst. The baby wouldn't stop crying, or I couldn't cope anymore, are the sort of excuses you usually hear in filicide cases. Here, it was been suggested that Alan's killer had taken their time to torment him and drag the attack out for as long as they could. Does that sound like something a mother would do to their child? Let me know your thoughts on that one. Two final curious things are that the gas hobs had all been switched on at number 41 and Alan was fully dressed in his army cadet gear, which you'll recall he wasn't wearing earlier in the evening. It wasn't his night to attend the cadets either, so perhaps he'd changed into the outfit as soon as Margaret left the house, directly disobeying her wishes. Leslie ran to a phone box and called the police before returning to his home with an ashen white face at 11.28pm. As the four adults bewilderedly looked at him, Leslie said, Alan's dead. I don't know what happened. The police arrived unusually quickly, within three minutes, and immediately secured the scene. Dr. Benstead was called to the house and, after a few hours, had concluded that the likely time of death was 11.10pm. How accurate that prediction was is up for debate. Not only because predicting a precise time of death is a bit of a logical guessing game, but because of the problem with the gas hobs being switched on. To enable detectives to secure the scene, every single window in the house had to be opened wide, which quickly let in the cold February air from outside. 
The house was, therefore, a very cold place to be, which would have further complicated the time of death estimation due to Alan's body's exposure to the cooler temperature. The 50-strong detective team did their utmost to find Alan's killer. They even visited Walton Liddell High School on February 27th to appeal to the young teenager's classmates. Urged to come forward with any information, the pupils provided so much stuff that it took officers five days to sift through. Local papers at the time went with the approach of there being an army cadet killer on the loose, which led to Andrew Matthews, Leslie's younger brother, resigning for fear of being the killer's next victim. Margaret was questioned for over four hours on the same day the detectives visited Alan's school and was eventually charged with her son's murder after signing a confession. Here's what she wrote in her confession statement. I called him a liar, a cheat and a thief and that he was a stranger to the truth. He got up. I slapped him across the face. I saw a little kitchen knife I'd been using to peel potatoes. I remember stabbing him a number of times. He fell to the floor and I stabbed him again in the throat. I was thinking, you bad little sod, all the time, and I had completely lost control of myself. She appeared at South Ribble Magistrates Court in Leyland the following day and was sent to a remand prison, but just three days later, she said she wanted to withdraw her confession. Margaret claimed that the detectives who questioned her had forced her into signing it after bullying her for hours. By March 3rd, Peter Nightingale's witness statement regarding seeing what he believed to be a man leaving Alan's house was suddenly withdrawn. Peter's brother Raymond informed the police that the whole thing was apparently a lie, so said Peter. The trial of Margaret Livesey began on July 2nd, 1979 at Preston Crown Court and was overseen by Mr Justice Talbot. The prosecution alleged that she had stabbed her son Alan to death after he purportedly disobeyed her. Because Alan was in his army fatigues when Margaret returned home, she assumed that he had left the house despite being told he was not allowed to. The reason for him being grounded on that occasion was because Alan was already in the police's bad books after being accused of stealing a car and crashing it. That act was fuelled by Alan not being allowed to attend a disco with his mates. On top of the car theft, Alan was thought to have been involved in shoplifting with some of the other lads on the Crescent, so Margaret wanted him to stay at home for his own good. The noises heard by neighbours were put forward as having been the result of the two arguing, and the red sock found around Alan's neck that was said to have been placed there because Margaret didn't want to see the arterial spray as she stabbed her son in the neck. The prosecution then alleged that Margaret left the gas hobs on in the hope of implicating someone else before wiping the murder weapon, a kitchen knife, and placing it back in a drawer. Margaret pleaded not guilty to murder after insisting she could not remember stabbing Alan and refused to believe she had. If you're unsure what to make of this case, so was the jury in that initial trial. On July 11th, the trial ended with a hung jury. After 48 hours of deliberation, the 12 jurors could not agree on a verdict. A retrial was set for later that month, with the second jury managing to agree a verdict. They found Margaret Livesey guilty of murdering Alan, with the former being handed a life sentence on July 26 by Mr Justice Talbot. Despite considering an appeal, her legal team opted against applying for one, given the lack of sufficient grounds. Seven years after receiving her sentence, Margaret saw her case aired on an episode of Rough Justice, a TV show aired on the BBC that investigated alleged miscarriages of justice. You might recall one of my previous guests, Louise Shorter, discussing the show when we chatted in interview number 27. Louise was a producer on Rough Justice back in the day. 
The episode focusing on Margaret's case aired in October 1983 and is available to watch at roughjusticetv.co.uk or on YouTube. Billed as the case of the tortured teenager, the story of Alan's murder appeared on two episodes of the show in total, but neither led to Margaret's conviction being overturned. West Yorkshire Police reinvestigated her case that same year, and it was eventually referred to the Court of Appeal three years after, but on both occasions, the outcome was reached that the jury's guilty verdict was the correct one. Margaret spent 13 years behind bars before being released from Cheshire's Style Prison in 1989. Wanting to live nearer her daughter, Janet, Alan's older sister, she moved to Surrey in South East England in an attempt to start her life over again, which she seemed to have successfully done. For a career, Margaret worked in a hospital as a senior member of the catering staff. By the turn of the millennium, Margaret had been diagnosed with throat cancer and opted to return north to Lancashire. In February 2001, just three months after her diagnosis, Margaret Livesey passed away aged 65. She left a clause in her will for her solicitors to carry on fighting to prove her innocence, something her son Derek remains convinced of. A forensic review was said to have begun in March 2016 by Lancashire Police, but I struggled to find any further updates on it. Detective Chief Inspector Dean Holden said of the review, We are conducting an initial forensic review and will evaluate the extent of any potential future inquiries once that forensic review is complete. In conclusion, this case looks like it could forever be a mystery. On the one hand, Margaret admitted to having killed Alan and was said to have been abusive towards him in the past. However, the way in which Alan was killed doesn't fit the narrative of a mother being angry at her son for leaving the house. The retracted statement of Peter Nightingale is also baffling. If you combine that with the initial statements made by Alan's neighbours about hearing his and another male's voice, the fact Alan had boys round often, and the pathologist estimated time of death could have been hampered by the windows being open, then you've got one hell of an argument to think that Alan was killed earlier by someone other than his mum. And that was the story of Alan and Margaret Livesey. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. If you're listening on Spotify, there is a section at the bottom of the episode. You can let me know what you thought about it. I've got four new reviews to read out this week. Annie left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I was not normally one to listen to murder podcasts, just actual TV documentaries, but this has changed my perspective easy and interesting listen and always lovely to have a fellow northern accent in my ears hope it's white rose and not red it absolutely is white rose annie don't worry about that james waterton left a five-star review on britishmurders.com which reads this has to be one of my most favorite podcasts now the lesser known cases are a huge relief to hearing the same cases covered by everyone binge the first five seasons in a week kld9 left a five-star review on apple podcast which reads Stumbled across this podcast while searching for something new to listen to, and so glad I did. Succinct, well-researched, and respectful handling of a tough subject matter. My new favourite true crime podcast. I love the Yorkshire accent too. Fantastic, thank you. And just to show that I don't just read the good reviews out, here's a two-star review from Kyrie L via Apple Podcast Canada, which reads, A self-congratulatory podcast overflowing with irrelevant personal anecdotes. I guess the congratulatory bit reports to me reading reviews out. Fair enough. I'm still going to keep doing it because I like engaging with my audience. The irrelevant personal anecdotes, few and far between in my more recent stuff, but they'll come when I think it's fit to include them. 
I appreciate that not being a one-star, Kari. Appreciate you leaving a review regardless. If the show's not for you, it's not for you. Fair enough. Thank you, Annie, James, KLD9, and Carrie for leaving the show those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis, you can find the links for Patreon and buy me a coffee on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Lauren Allen. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll get a cheeky shout out for your suggestion once I cover the case. And that does it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.